0: Dripping down science. The Naked
1: Scientists.
0: This week, we're going to immerse you in the science of the sea and specifically in endangered marine species, how we can conserve them, and a jellyfish explosion off the coast of Africa. No, we're not talking a jellyfish that literally exploded, it's a population explosion. And here to help us with that this evening is from the University of St Andrews, Dr. Chris Lynham. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. (laughs) Thank you for coming in. Dan LaFoley, who's head of the marine conservation at uh, English Nature. Hi, Hi, Dan. Hi, Chris. And joining us later on the phone, we'll be talking to Dr. Bruce Wright, who's from the Conservation Institute in Alaska, and uh, Bruce has been working on sharks, amongst other things, and he'll be telling us about his work up there in the frozen north. Helen.
2: Thanks, Chris. Yes, tonight we will uh, also be uh, taking a step closer to tourism in outer space with a prototype inflatable space hotel. And how do you fancy plugging yourself into a virtual world next time you go to the dentist, just to perhaps make your time a little bit more enjoyable while you're under the drill? And we'll also be revealing how bumblebees and wildflowers are taking an alarming nosedive together, which could spell us big problems for pollination.
3: Also coming up later is this. The Great White, where it's just coming straight to the camera, it's one of those situations where... You go, oh, this is going to be a great shot, this is going to be great, and then, uh uh-oh, is it going to turn?
0: Well, that's Gavin McKinney describing his latest film, which is called Sharks 3D. It's on at the Science Museum's IMAX 3D Cinema, and guess what, we've got two family tickets to give away so you can go and immerse yourself down there in the IMAX and see some of nature's most amazing animals quite literally swimming past your head in fully three dimensions, and that does include that great white, and there'll be more from Gavin McKinney later on in tonight's programme.
1: The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at UKFast.net
0: And if you'd like to find out how to win uh, those family tickets to the IMAX down in London, it's very simple. Have a go at tonight's teaser. All you have to do is tell us when you put some acid in your kettle to get rid of the scale on the element, such as vinegar, you see a gas coming off. What's that gas? Can you tell us? You could be off to the IMAX 08459 25 2000 or you can email chris at nakedscientist.com and you can send us a text as well. The text number's 07786 20 1960. Now, Helen, where do you fancy going on holiday if you could have your dream destination?
2: Oh, gosh, well, it'd have to be somewhere in the sea, wouldn't it? Fairly obviously for me. I'm, I'm going to go for Micronesia. I want to go and see the stingless jellyfish in Micronesia. You don't
0: fancy going into space?
2: Oh. OK, yes, space too. Yeah, and then that would be good. If it were, I thought you meant on Earth. No. OK, no, space well, the, the would be the great. The thing's
0: because scientists and researchers and also people who are behind the tourist industry reckon the next big tourist mecca is space.
2: OK, what and can by, you do in space? Well,
0: well, by 2012, they want to have a deployed a hotel drifting around in orbit around Earth and they want to be sending the first generation of space tourists up there by 2012. It doesn't sound too much of an unreasonable proposition. It's a company called Bigelow Aerospace. They're a US company, and this week they've taken the first step towards this massive, great celestial floating hotel uh, with the launch of Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is this uh, inflatable hotel that quite literally blows itself up in space in the nicest possible way. What they've done is to deploy this thing on a Russian rocket. It's a Dnepa rocket, which, funnily enough, used to be an intercontinental ballistic cruise missile, and now it offers cruises of a different kind up into space uh, to their hotel. But this hotel blew itself up and it became a long tube, about three by two and a half metres, and uh, it deployed some solar panels all correctly, and the interior was maintained at a nice comfy uh, 26 degrees Celsius. So what they're hoping is, off the back of that, to now launch Genesis 2, maybe later this year if all goes according to plan, and there'll be a bigger version, and the idea is to have the fully functioning tourist hotel in space by 2012.
2: It's not far off, is it? Although I'm really not convinced. What can you do in space? I mean, looking back at the Earth would be pretty amazing. But after that, you're just going to read books and go to the gym. I mean,
0: you can bob around a bit. I suppose, um,
2: Okay, anti-gravity, a bit bit like scuba diving, actually. It's
0: really bad for you, uh, zero gravity, though. For a I long say time, microgravity, yes, because yeah. we know that within days of going up there, your bones start to, oh, within days. to, to thin. Yeah, because Gosh. you take the load off of your bones, and just gravity here on Earth makes a big difference to how strong your bones are. And they begin to literally fall apart in space, and astronauts and people who are on the International Space Station at the moment, when they've been recovered back to Earth, have uh, had long-term changes in their bones, which as far as we know might even be irreversible so there are two consequences partly gravity and partly the radiation but uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to get onto this uh, thing in 2012 if we're lucky the only slight downside is a little bit of a stumbling block at the moment whilst the company can get the hotel up there they haven't quite solved the problem of the space tour bus to get you there yet
2: excellent okay well back down to earth now and uh, rather bad news i think uh, that uh, the a recent study showing that the number of bees and flower species are both declining and it could spell really bad news for food production. This is according to a study from uh, the journal Science this week and a team of scientists based in Britain and the Netherlands. Now, to find out um, what was going on with bees and flowers, the scientists didn't go out and do the research themselves. Instead, they examined records kept by amateur enthusiasts stretching over 100 years. Now, just like bird watchers who like to keep records of what they see, there are also people out there who are very enthusiastic about bees and hoverflies and wild flowers and they can keep very detailed notes about when they see them and where they see them and this is a really valuable source of information for scientists because we can't scientists can't all be out there counting all these bees all of the time in such a big area and um, And what they found is basically that we've got various different trends in the populations of these different species and the bumblebees and the flowers are all basically are declining in both of these countries, in Britain and the Netherlands. And the species that have done the worst seem to be those that have got very specific requirements. So it's either bees that rely on a very particular species of flower to find enough food for them and their young or a flower that has to have a certain species of bee to pollinate it they have. there are some very specific relationships that go on there, in fact some of the more common species of bees are actually increasing but generally this is quite a worrying decline um, the scientists who've done the study think it could. the reason for it could be various things but basically linked to changes in habitat, climate change and the effects of our modern intensive farming system, we're using lots of fertilisers artificial fertilisers and pesticides and this is really changing our landscape and and it's causing changes in these very important pollinators. And it's estimated that, that the value of bees globally is about 20, perhaps between 20 and 50 billion pounds a year in terms of the crops that they pollinate. Although actually I would argue that it's priceless. Can we imagine replacing the function of these bees and pollinating crops ourselves? I don't think there is a way we can do that at the moment. Not- but
0: in some countries they've actually shipped in Bees that uh, they didn't have before, bigger bumblebees, yes. because they're, they're deemed to be more efficient pollinators. Because bumblebees can travel ten miles from their nest quite happily, because yeah. they're a fairly big bee, they can travel quite fast. That's an extraordinary distance to think they can go all that way from home and find their way back unerringly and visit all these flowers along the way. But um, uh, yes, you're right. It's very difficult to see, you know, how you would replace something like that.
2: And I think, and there's all sorts of problems with involved with. Moving species around the planet, you know, alien species as we call them, species going to places where they shouldn't be, bringing parasites and causing changes in ecosystems. So, you know, basically, we want to hold on to our bees if we can, and uh, it's possible that this this is a trend that's fairly specific to Netherlands and Britain because we have changed our natural environment so much on land. There's not really much left that is natural, and perhaps the rest of the world has has some more bees and wildflowers doing a bit better. But it's a very worrying trend.
0: So beware, I suppose, is the bottom oh line there. Now look, beware of this because. Because you might be one of the one million people in the UK who are scared to go and visit a person who would use this tool and cover your ears if you're at all squeamish. You know what that was, Turn of it course? Off. It, was it was, of horrible. course, a dental drill. And I had a wonderful story sent to me this week by Helen Carmichael. And she was recently out in Finland. And while she was there, she took the time to go and talk to somebody called Ismo Kartunen. Uh, who's a Finnish inventor, and he's come up with something which we hope will make trips to the dentist a little bit more bearable for everybody. Now, what his invention is, is a virtual reality headset, and you strap this device onto your face, and it has two big goggles which have tiny TV screens embedded in them, and it can show you various things, movies, music various distractions, if you like, whilst you're having your procedure done. And the key thing about this is it doesn't totally enclose your vision, so you don't feel claustrophobic. You can still see around the edge, but it's intended to block out the centre field of view, so you can't see the dentist tinkering in your mouth. They've done a few trials, and people went for longer and had more invasive procedures before they needed any anaesthetic at the dentist. And also recent trials of minor surgical procedures at a Finnish hospital showed that patients using the procedure managed to tolerate more uh, without painkillers. So that looks encouraging. I'm a little bit worried that what they're actually showing on the headset um, could actually in itself make the trial a little bit unfair. Um, Apparently they're showing Robbie Williams. 20 minutes of that's like having your teeth pulled anyway, isn't it? Or guess what the most popular one is?
2: Um I've no sting. Idea. Sting. Fantastic. OK, a slightly more serious note. Um, finding the solutions, finding solutions to that terrible disease, cervical cancer and the virus that we, um, causes it is something we've talked about quite a lot on The Naked Scientist. We've had Professor Margaret Stanley in quite a bit to talk to us about her work on that. But this week there's news of a possible new approach to combating the virus and the answer could lie in common seaweed. Carrageenan, also known as Irish moss, is found all over rocky shores. If you go and have a look on a rocky shore near you, anywhere in Europe or North America, you'll find this growing right down the bottom of the shore. I found it Plymouth last week and and uh, it may not sound familiar to you but actually we're unwittingly using carrageenan every day in things like toothpaste and yogurt it's a thickening agent that baby we- food even Maybe everything, yeah. I think. A lot of things have carrageenan in it. But the now a team of scientists from the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda in Maryland in the USA have discovered that carrageenan um, is highly effective against preventing the spread of the um, HPV, the human papillomavirus, which we know to cause cervical cancer. And it's um, about 100 times more effective at the same dose as the best available inhibitor that's currently available on the market. Um, it seems to act by basically sticking to proteins on the surface of the HPV virus and preventing it from interacting and getting inside those cells in the cervix and causing cancer. Um, And the compound also seems to be effective against the human simplex virus which causes cold sores although to, to affect those viruses it has to be given at much higher doses. Now, it really could be very good news because this stuff, carrageenan, is very cheap. It's safe to use. We already, you know, we're eating it. We're spreading it on ourselves already. Not a problem. And um, we could really be not very far away. You know, it could be quite quick. It has to go through trials, obviously, first. And that's something that's happening already before we can use it. But it could be used as a topical gel, perhaps something very, you know, user friendly, especially in developing countries where things like perhaps vaccinations aren't so practical, things like that. And we already also know that carrageenan is a very powerful inhibitor against the AIDS-causing virus, HIV. So perhaps we can have some kind of fantastic killing two deadly diseases with a single stone-type solution here.
0: One really encouraging thing that I did read about this, Helen is that, yes, it's all very well for us guys here in the in the first world to say we're going to make a vaccine which is going to stop cervical cancer. We're going to come up with eventually a series of drugs that will disable HIV. But most people in the world can't afford those agents. No, and uh, they, they also probably require careful storage. They require administration, probably by vaccination, a needle yeah. or something. Some people just won't have access. And those people who don't have access are the people who have the worst problems with these diseases. And so something like this, which is very cheap, very easy to deploy, is extremely effective potentially and another point is that the vaccines that are being made against cervical cancer only work against some forms of the hpv that can cause cervical cancer there are other forms whilst they don't often cause cervical cancer they still can and so if you don't represent them in the vaccine it means you're still potentially a little bit at risk so adding something like this could be a very effective way to knock that on the head This is The Naked Scientist, Chris and Helen, and this evening we'll be talking, amongst other things, a bit later on, with uh, a number of guests we have in the studio. Dan LaFoley from uh, English Nature, also Chris Lyon from the University of St Andrews, and we'll be discussing specifically what's going on in the world's oceans. Species are disappearing, other species are increasing in numbers enormously... Is this all because of our interference? And also, has global warming got a role to play in this? We'll be finding out later. If you have any questions for them, call in now, 08459 And if you have any general science questions, just drop us a line too. Don't forget my teaser. When you put some acid in the kettle to clear off the element, such as vinegar or lemon juice, you get some bubbles of gas coming off. What are those bubbles? If you can tell us, you could be off down to the Science Museum, IMAX 3D Cinema, to see Sharks 3D the brand-new film that's just launched there. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, and we're talking later on this evening about marine conservation and all that sort of thing. If you'd like to give us a call, 08459 25 2000. Uh, We've heard from Mike, who's in Southend, uh, with my kettle question. He's definitely on the right lines. And he also asks Helen, could you make artificial gravity on your space station by making it spin?
2: I think that's how they do it, doesn't it? At least that's how they do it in uh, sort of sci-fi films, (laughs) slowly revolving space stations so you get some gravity.
0: What you're essentially doing is making it so that the space station, you end up with yourself flying out towards the wall of the space station, so it's pushing in on you and therefore creating the impression that you're being pulled towards it when in fact the the outer wall of the space station is pushing in on you and giving you something to press against so you can walk.
2: like that thing in the um, fairground rides when you go in that big barrel and it spins around and you go up the walls. I don't like doing it myself but I've seen people do it and The effect afterwards doesn't look great, but maybe if you tone it down a bit, it would work in space. Anyway, as always, we're off to America for a short science update from Bob Herschel and Chelsea Ward. And this week they'll be telling us about how humpback whales use sonar to identify what they're about to have for dinner. And they can tell their friends. And also they're going to tell us about a new way to replace a damaged retina.
4: This week for the Naked Scientists, we'll talk about researchers who are designing retinal implants that work by sending chemicals to your brain, much the way working retinas do. But first, Chelsea tells us about an animal with lousy vision, but a unique way of seeing with sound.
5: Humpback whales make this trumpet sound only when feeding, but why they do it has long been a mystery. Now, physicist Orest Diachuk of Johns Hopkins says the sound may help the humpback size up a school of fish. He says the sound consists of several notes, and fish of different sizes absorb different notes. So if one humpback trumpets below a school, a partner listening above the school could identify the fish.
3: And a whale near the surface... According to the theory, would say, "Yeah, I hear all the notes except one. It's the, it's the uh, middle G." I said, "Ah, well, in that case, that must be
4: hearing."
5: He says humpbacks are known to hunt in teams, and he hopes to test his hypothesis by attaching microphones to them and listening in.
4: Thanks, Chelsea. Well, to restore sight to people with damaged retinas, scientists are developing implantable chips that stimulate the nerves in the eye. Most of the prototype implants are electrical, but Stanford University chemical engineer Stacey Bent is developing a biochemical version.
6: So where the chip interacts with the nerve cell, instead of putting out an electrical signal, it's going to release a little pulse of a chemical called a neurotransmitter that the nerve cell responds to.
4: Since that's how the real retina works, the chip should be more compatible with the eye. And unlike electrical probes, neurotransmitters can target individual nerve cells, thereby creating sharper images. In fact, in lab experiments, Bent's team is training retinal nerves to grow right into the chip. And while restoring normal vision is a long way off, it's hoped that the first implants will allow people to see rough shapes and motion.
5: Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll learn about some birds in the Galapagos that are evolving before scientists' eyes. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald.
4: And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists.
2: Thanks, Bob. Yeah, those whales do sound wonderful. Have you ever heard whales underwater, Chris?
4: Actually, only,
0: only on a recording, but uh, allegedly their voices can carry about 1,000 miles.
2: It's a long way, and it does sound quite magical when you're in the water with them. You can't see them, but you know they're somewhere out there. But uh, the interesting
0: thing about this is that, um, maybe these guys can help us, but whales are really suffering because of our activities in the seas, aren't they? Because we now make so much noise pollution, not just above the surface of the water, but now underwater with sonar, seismic exploration, and also just boat propellers, that we're literally drowning out these guys' voices.
7: Yeah, there's, um, there's been quite a lot of concern recently about strandings of whales, for example, um, and there's been quite a lot of work done in America looking at the relationship between these strandings uh, and naval activity, and they think one of the things which they're, they're particularly concerned about is the effects of these very high-intensity uh, noise on the, the actual physical, the, on the, on the, the, the physical well-being of these individuals.
0: I did see a report, it was about a year and a half ago, looking at uh, the, the bones left over from sperm whales, which had been recovered, and they were full of holes, as though the whales had been developing the bends. Now, obviously, these animals are fishing at very, very great depths, aren't they? And then normally they would surface very, very gently to make sure that the gas dissolved in their bloodstream and their tissues gently came out of solution. But uh, to get the bends, as, as Helen knows, as a diver, you've got to surface too quickly, and then the dissolved gas literally forms bubbles. So one person has suggested in America that perhaps these lesions that are being seen in whale's bones are because we're frightening them, perhaps with sonar and this kind of thing, and making them come up too quick.
7: Well, I I think it it may be a combination of that, but I also think um, potentially it's about disorientation because they use sound to to communicate, to to navigate. And also some very interesting stuff done a little time ago was about the fact that um, uh, these sound waves also actually sort of clear the sea of fish as well. So if they're going to be depending on on fish as a source of food, then there's particular issues there as well um, about them actually um, um, maintaining their, their health from from what they feed from.
0: Let's have a quick chat to Martin, who is uh, on the line. Hi, Martin.
7: Hi, doctors.
0: Hello. Oh, it's a bit noisy there. Are you driving? Yeah, I'm uh, so. it Sounds like the road is clear for a change.
7: But, yeah, yeah.
0: What do you want to know about, Martin?
7: Right, well, it's something I saw today that I've never, ever seen before. Yeah. I saw this thing flying around, and it had a really iridescent green, what I thought was a tile so I thought it was a damsel fly or something. Yeah. And when it actually landed and it was trying to get into a hole in a, a metal fence, I saw that it was a wasp carrying a leaf. <laughs> right. Is there, a, is there such a thing as a leaf cut wasp or...
8: Well, the
0: thing that what wasps normally do, apart from raiding your dinner plate at barbecues, because wasps are elite pretty much anything, um, they will take back bits that they can turn into wood pulp to make their nests. Because if you've ever looked at a wood nest, uh, a wasp's nest, it's made of paper and as you know paper comes from wood so what wasps do is to chew up stuff which is very rich in cellulose cellulose is the substance that wood is made from and they chew this up and then regurgitate it and mix it with some of their saliva which acts a bit like wallpaper paste to glue it back together and they then deposit it in very neat uh, sort of lines to make these beautiful wasp nests so it could be that the wasp either thought that the leaf was good to eat and so it was taking it back to the nest to feed wasps with or it thought this was an ideal source of some cellulose to turn into more nest material. I don't think that wasps behave in the same way as leafcutter ants. And leafcutter ants, the, what they do is go and get lumps of whole leaf. They carry it back to their nest. And then when they're in their nest, they infect the pieces of leaf with a certain kind of fungus. And this fungus Breaks down the leaf because it's got all the right enzymes to digest it, and the ants then feed on the fungus itself. And uh, these particular ants um, have a very clever way of dealing with invasive forms of fungus. So they have their own sort of antibiotic. Sorry about the pun, which they can dish out to encourage just that one fungus to grow, but not the other. But to my knowledge, wasps don't do that. I don't know if you guys know anything about wasps and want to contribute. But I, I don't think um, I don't think wasps do that,
2: Helen. I don't think so. I've definitely seen leaf cutter wasps, and um, I've sat next to a bush and watched bees wasps come backwards and forwards, cutting over and over um, bits, you know, returning to get more and more of it. So they clearly want lots of it. It wasn't just a one-off I don't think. Yeah,
6: I was
7: going to say it's strange because it was going into a hollow fence post, which yep. didn't look big enough to contain a nest.
0: Well the thing about wasps is they're opportunistic and it might be that down in the ground if that fence post was hollow, there was a nice big hole where they've actually It
8: was a metal one, actually a gate.
0: Yeah, well, they're very good at burrowing, and wasps often build their nests in the ground. And that would make an ideal entrance if they could go into the pole down to the down to the ground inside and then form their nest inside. They, they're they're pretty good at doing that kind of thing. Right. Quick go at the quiz.
8: Yeah, I like a quick dry.
0: Here we go then. There are seven billion seconds in a century. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction? Oh, I don't
8: know. seven billion seconds.
9: Um, in a hundred years. No, it's got to be a six, hasn't it?
2: So say no yeah, that's right. Actually, it's half that many. About 3.1 billion seconds in 100 years. Yeah.
0: And your next one, Martin. The average American chomps their way through the equivalent of 30 pigs in meat in a lifetime. That's just in, in pork, that is.
7: Um, considering all the um, burgers and sausages and
8: hot dogs they yeah, have, that's probably
2: true. Yes, disgusting but true, I'm afraid. <laughs> 30 pigs a lifetime. you better get eating.
0: Martin, well done. Two out of two so far. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientists. If you'd like to ask us any questions, just phone up 08459 is our phone number, or you can email uh, Kerry, who's helping us with our emails this evening, kerry.fox at bbc.co.uk. It's the Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, and uh, very, very shortly we'll be talking to Chris Lynham from the University of St Andrews and Dan Lafoni, who's the Head of Marine Conservation at English Nature, about what's going on in our oceans. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. Now this week, for Kitchen Science, Derek's with Helen Chersky, Kathleen and Rachel. They're at Mildenhall Hall College of Technology and they're psyching themselves up to do battle against not an opponent that we normally associate with being an opponent, but against the strength of our entire atmosphere. So let's see if they've got on. Hi Derek.
9: Hello there, yes, and welcome to Mildenhall College of Technology in Suffolk, where we've come to do an experiment all about pressure, and uh, we've got some volunteers here who are from the school here, and also um, the expert that we've got who's come in to, uh, to help run the experiment for us, Helen Cheresky is here. Um, could you just tell us what it is we're doing today?
6: We're going to pit people against the force of the air and see who wins.
9: Excellent. OK, so we've got a big match-up coming up soon. We've got Air versus us lot, and we're going to see who wins. So hang on to find out what happens there. And we've also got some, uh, some volunteers, uh, some Year 10 pupils who've come to help us as well. Could you guys just tell me your names, please?
2: I'm Kathleen. I'm Rachel.
9: OK, very good to have you with us. So what we have here is some equipment that Helen and uh, some people at her lab have set up. Now, what it really is is um, a steel sphere, which is uh, a little bit larger than a football, And um, it's actually hollow and and is in two halves, basically. So if you can imagine that there's two kind of hemispheres which can come apart. Now, they can't actually be taken fully apart, but they have these kind of bolts that allow them to come apart by about an inch or so. And we've also got some rope attached to one half of the sphere and some rope attached to the other half as well. And finally, uh, there's kind of an engine-looking thing which is connected to a valve which is connected to this sphere. So... It all looks delightfully crazy, so I'm going to ask Helen just to describe exactly what it is and what it does.
6: So what we're going to do here is recreate an experiment that was first done in Magdeburg in Germany over 300 years ago, um, and we're going to show how, how strong air pressure is. It's all around us, but we're so used to it that we don't notice how strong it is. And what this sphere here is, um, split into two halves, like you said. Now I'm going to just open it up a little bit, and I'd like our volunteers here have a look inside. What can you see inside this sphere? There's, like,
2: nothing in there.
6: Well, there is actually. We've still got air in there, but otherwise that's not bad. But the important thing I want you to notice is that we've got no glue, there's no little catches, there's nothing that's going to hold these spheres together out. We've just got smooth metal surfaces. So now all I'm going to do is I'm going to place the two hemispheres. They're just sitting next to each other. And the extra thing that we have is on the side of one of those hemispheres, we've got a tube that goes out to my vacuum pump, and my vacuum pump is over here. And I'm going to switch that on. you going to hear it in the background. And that's exactly the same as the vacuum pump that you've got in your vacuum cleaner at home. What it's going to do is suck all the air out of the inside of the sphere. So this time there really will be nothing left inside that sphere. So we're going to let it, let it go down. So what do you think? I'm going to switch the vacuum pump off in a minute and close up the valve. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think it's going to fall apart like it did before? It's got nothing in it. Um, no, because there'll be like lots of pressure inside, so you won't be able to pull it apart.
9: OK. All right, then. Well, here we go. Are we ready right, now?
6: So let's have a look. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to close up the valve here and switch off my vacuum pump. And the first thing I'm going to do is lift it up by the rope on one side. So we had a rope on each hemisphere, and I'm going to lift it up, and it hasn't fallen apart. And I can juggle it about, and it's not falling apart.
9: I mean, what, what's, what's happening in there, firstly, Helen? I mean, in there, we've got a vacuum, right?
6: We have nothing. It's absolutely true. We have, but this time, we've got proper nothing. But on the outside, we still have something. On the outside, we still have air, and that air is still pushing in. And because there's nothing on the inside to push back, but there's lots of things on, there's lots of air molecules on the outside pushing in, the spheres stay together because they're being pushed together by the air.
9: I'm recalling that Rachel said earlier that um, there would be kind of force inside or pressure inside that would keep it together. But I mean, is is that the right way round?
6: It's actually the other way around, so it's the pressure outside that's pushing in. Suckers really push.
9: OK, then. So, anyway, we've got lots of ropes attached to this, so actually there's a way we can kind of investigate, I gather, exactly how strong the air really is.
6: That's right, and this was the experiment that was done in Magdeburg back 300 years ago. And in order to prove um, the concept of air pressure, what he did was he had a sphere just like this, a little bit bigger, but he attached eight horses on either side, and they tried to get the eight horses to pull the sphere apart. But we're going to see if we can pull this sphere apart with the people we've got in the room right here. So, I think we should uh, line up like a tug of war.
9: So, what we've done is we've actually tied one side, we've kind of anchored it to a very strong strut in the lab that we're in, which we're sure will stay where it is. And on the other side, all of us, including me, I think, if I can hold the microphone and a piece of the rope at the same time, we're all going to do some pulling. And we're, we've got the, the producer here as well who's joining in. So, yeah, there's a few of us. So, here we go, we're all pulling. And it is not going anywhere. Let me just quickly ask what's going on at the front. Kathleen, I mean, what's happening here?
6: It's not coming apart.
9: Yeah, Okay. I mean, are we really putting our back into it, Rachel? Yeah. Helen, how many of us would be needed to actually get this thing apart? Well,
6: I've only had this sphere pulled apart once, and that was by 20 adults. Um, And I reckon, I worked this out once, that the force needed to pull this apart. One good way of generating it would be actually hanging a baby elephant from a rope. If you could put it in a sling so it's nice and happy and hang it from the end of a rope, that's how much force you'd need to pull these spheres apart.
9: So what is it actually that we're pulling against here, or or really not not managing to beat here?
6: Well, we're not pulling against the vacuum, because the vacuum's just doing nothing. But the air all around us is pushing on the sphere, and we're pulling on the sphere. And whichever one of those two is stronger is the one that's going to win. So our pull was not stronger than the air's push.
9: And so really then, the air's push, which is happening all around us and and on our bodies all the time, I suppose, that really is quite strong.
6: Yeah, it is. And in fact, you can see this every day. Um, For example, if you fill a glass full of water right up to the top and put um, a a flat plastic plate on the top of it and hold the plate on, turn it upside down and then take your hand away, the plate won't fall off and it's exactly for the same reason that the air is pushing upwards on the plate and it stays put.
9: OK, well, let's move back to the sphere then because Helen is also able to let some air back in. So talk us through this.
6: So this is just to prove I wasn't cheating. So I'm holding the sphere up now. And what I'm about to do is I've got a valve in the side of the sphere and I'm going to let the air back in. I'm holding the sphere up. So when the air gets back in, then there'll be air inside and it can push outwards and hopefully the spheres will then fall apart.
9: Okay, so tell us what you see, guys.
6: She's turned the handle thing on the side of it and the air's come apart and now
2: it's fallen back down
9: okay so can you kind of explain to us now i mean hopefully we've kind of you know made it clear what's going on there what actually happened there when when helen kind of released the valve
2: the air came back in until there was an equal pressure on the inside as to the outside and it just fell
6: apart
9: i think that sounds pretty good to me what do you say helen
6: and that was fantastic, bang on. OK, well
9: that's all from uh, the Mildenhall College of Technology, so uh, thank you very much indeed for uh, being our helpers and doing that bit of tug of war. Unfortunately the atmosphere did win, uh, so never mind but if we had you know, 20 adults or even a baby elephant then I suppose we could have done it. OK, well that's all for this time but do join us next time for some more science out in the east of England. Uh, until then, goodbye. Thank you
0: very much Derek, Kathleen, Rachel and Helen Chersky for showing us the power of the atmosphere. Now next week Derek's going to be at Hinchingbrook School making some amazing sounds with an oven shelf and we want you to try this at home because it's hilarious but you will be amazed at what you can do what you're going to need is the shelf out of your oven preferably not while it's been on a cool oven shelf you'll need two pieces of string each about a meter long so you can tie them onto the oven shelf and you're going to need yourself as part of the experiment and also a nice wooden spoon or something like that Because you're going to be hitting the oven shelf, but not too hard with it. And then seeing what happens. Helen.
2: Quick email here from Max Ferretti, who says, uh, what an excellent programme. Thank you very much, Max. And he says, Dr. Chris, your analogies are superb. And everyone on the show is a pleasure to listen to. Thank you very much, Max. He also says um, the ongoing accent debate about do you like our accents or not. He says he can tell the difference between an Australian and a British accent, but only because he watches far too much television.
0: Helen, you've really done it now, because the last time, or one of the last times you are on this programme, you asked people, what do you think of our UK accents? You have spawned in the region of about 100 emails just about accents, and so I'm really sorry to everyone who took the trouble to write. We haven't possibly got the time to read them all out, because we'd be here for a whole hour doing that. But thank you to everyone who contributed their thoughts. They were hilarious. Fancy listening
1: to the naked scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work... Mm -hmm why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast.
0: Now look, uh, if you want to have a go at my competition this evening, we have tickets to go down and see Sharks 3D. This is at the Science Museum. It's amazing. It's an IMAX movie. It's just come out. We'll be hearing a bit more about it shortly. But you sit in the IMAX cinema and you see some of nature's most amazing animals quite literally swimming around you in three dimensions. And we've got two family tickets to give away. To win one of those, you either have a go at our science fact or science fiction here on the programme, or you have a go at my simple challenge. When you put some acid in the kettle, either lemon juice or vinegar, for example, and you see it fizzing and some gas coming off... What is that gas? Just ring us up 08459 2000 and tell us. We've heard from Janet in Wellingborough. She thought the answer was ammonia. Not quite. But Tim in Upminster is definitely on the right lines.
2: Now, as promised, we're going to talk today about the oceans and some of the problems facing those seas around us. And uh, in the studio with us today is Chris Lynham from the University of St Andrews. Hi, Chris. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Now, um, we've all heard about overfishing and, you know, we take many of these fish out of the oceans to eat for ourselves, but how widespread is this problem?
1: Well, pretty much wherever you have large-scale industrial fishing, you you tend to have overfishing because... um, I mean, scientists, they, they give quotas, but uh, generally by the time these quotas actually make it into management, um, the fear of upsetting people and putting people out of work, they, they tend to be higher than you actually want, and so the overfishing goes on, even at a, a lower level. So overfishing is a big problem, um, and, and over time it becomes even more of a problem because as you reduce the population and fishing becomes uh, more intense on, on the, the smaller animals um, because you've fished out the, the larger animals, uh, you, you tend to fish down the food web and end up with... a. a a poorer age structure, where you've got lots of small fish and not so many of, of the the larger fish, and then, Cause the big ones are pretty important because yeah. they have the, the 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 most babies, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and obviously they're the, the most commercially important as well. And um, as you remove those and you focus more on the smallest uh, fish, then you tend to look at other species, and so the overfishing continues around the food web, and, and all fish species eventually um, become important for fishing. So. There was an important point which was made
0: by a girl who won this year's Young Telegraph uh, sorry, Telegraph Young Science Writers competition, Eve Van Bergen, and she wrote about salmon farming and made the point that when we rear salmons, uh, salmon in a, in a closed environment and you just force feed them and the emphasis is on gaining as much weight as possible it's actually making the fish really genetically unfit mm. uh, and, and terribly fat too. Flabby. But exactly and and it's selecting in favour of a population of fish that just gain weight quickly but are not very fit fish mm-hmm. and and it's also meaning that some of them end up with this inherent tendency towards having heart problems mm. and, uh, and she said in fact the way to rear the best fish is to put them in a flow tank where you have a sort of current running make and make them, them swim into it and make them do some work and then you get great tasting fish mm. and they're also
1: healthy. Yeah and apparently with salmon uh, the problem with these, uh, these uh, produced salmon uh, is that they, when they escape they tend to actually re- reproduce quite, quite strongly and therefore they uh, alter the wild population as well so you get more and more of these flabby Gene's fish.
2: <laughs> and of course, um, you know the main problem with the idea of rearing things like salmon is that we feed salmon in these aquaculture systems other ground-up fish, and it's these mm. often these very small fish, isn't it, Chris, that we're sort of scooping off the bottom of the sea that we wouldn't particularly want to eat ourselves, but we can grind them up to make fish meal mm. and feed the salmon with and them. So really, we're farms. not we're not taking that impact away from the oceans by farming them. We're actually just sort of sidelining it and and mm. uh, you know feeding fish to fish. Yes,
1: yeah. and you take more and more of the smaller fish to feed up. The the, the larger
0: fish, but Chris, tell us about this jellyfish business because you've been studying that directly uh, off the coast of Namibia.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean th- these are one of the species that because they're unexploited in well in this particular nation, uh, a particular location, they're unexploited. They can benefit from the, the overfishing because you remove the planktivorous fish, and and these are, so these are fish like herring and. and uh, uh, sardines and pilchards, you remove those and there's more food around for, for other species such as jellyfish, which prey on the same species. And, uh, uh, and so
0: what? And so, the consequences to jellyfish? You get are more
1: just... and more jellies and uh, uh, there's, as there's fewer and fewer fish um, because they're being overfished and you get more jellies, and jellies also feed on fish eggs and fish larvae and so they can help suppress... Um, these, the planktivorous species.
0: So it's this kind of vicious circle yeah, you end up with more jellyfish so you end up with less fish.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it sounds like a bit of a daft question but it isn't because I have a sort of background knowledge that uh, a while back there was one company trialling jellyfish-based snacks, packet food, a bit like crisps, but made of jellyfish. Mm-hmm. I never saw any more about that. What happened to it? And, and can we exploit
1: jellyfish in that way? Are they good to eat? I mean, some jellyfish are. I mean, the Chinese particularly in, enjoy um, eating jellyfish. And uh, it, it tends to be of the order Rhizostoma, which are the, the type of jellies we do get in the Irish Sea, uh, the barrel jellies. Um, and these they have a lot of uh, protein, a lot of collagen, which can... As well as being nutritious, once you've removed all the water and the salt and <laughs> and gotten rid of the stinging cells, it, <laughs> cool. it sounds like a bit of
0: a, a bit of a lot high price to pay for a yeah, snack.
1: Yeah, it's it's quite easy to do. Apparently, you just have to soak them and keep adding water and soaking them. Adding, uh, sorry, adding water and adding salt, and uh, <laughs> and sort of curing them. Haven't they got enough salt already? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, apparently, I mean, this I've never actually done it, but this is uh, how I hear you do it. You um, you boil them and cut them into strips and and uh, drain them and. Um,
2: I've actually sorry to jump in there, but I've I've seen the guy actually eat the jellyfish that stung me once in Malaysia. And he grabbed it out of the water well, to teach it a lesson, and he snipped off its <laughs> sort of pinched off its tentacles, and its body actually didn't have any stinging tentacles mm. on it. And yeah, apparently, and he just sort of chopped it up and stir fried it and ate it. I didn't but try. D- you didn't it. try any? No, you no. didn't want to get your own back. I think I was feeling too bad about the sting in the first place. <laughs> I think.
0: Well, what sort of jellyfish was
2: that? Oh, gosh. I think it was... They called it a box jellyfish, but it wasn't the, the type of box jellyfish that you get in, the, in Australia. It was a local name for one of the Malaysian ones, but I'm afraid I don't know which one it was. So, Chris, why has this only
1: just happened in, in Namibia? Oh, it, it hasn't. I mean, this is just uh, the latest uh, locations where, where people have begun to worry about these things. I mean, there's, historically, there used to be a very, very high fish stocks uh, in Namibia, but um, they were overfished for, for well, decades, and, and now we're, we're at uh, very low levels of fish. And um, these jellyfish... But, we, we know they, they've been there for a significant, um, well, for a couple of decades now and they've been in very, very high abundances and, and they're causing a problem for fishermen and people because uh, they uh, damage the, the nets when you, when you uh, try to haul them up. Because they're so heavy, presumably. Because they, they clog up the net and so sort of the water can't drain out as it would do with, with fish and, and it just becomes like a bucket and so it, it rips as you um, uh, pull it out of the water and it bursts. OK, we're talking with Chris Lynham
0: from the University of St Andrews. If you'd like to join us uh, with any questions for him, 08459 2000 is our phone number, or you can email us, chris at nakedscientist.com, and you can send us a text as well. The text number 07786 20 1960. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. It's the Naked Scientist with Chris, that's me, and Helen, and we're here with you for about another half an hour, and we're talking this evening with Dan LaFoley, with Chris Lynham, and now we're going to talk with uh, from Alaska, the Conservation Science Institute, uh, Bruce Wright. Hi, Bruce. Hi, good morning. Well, yes, it's, uh, it's evening for us, but um, tell us, what is it you get up to in Alaska?
8: Well, I've been doing some shark research recently, and... Um... Just got back from the Aleutians, I'm doing a project on paralytic shellfish poisoning, PSP, and we've been testing uh, some new areas out there using some new technology, testing for PSP and trying to link it to climate change and changing current.
0: But you've seen some pretty profound changes in what happens if you just drag a net across some of the areas of Alaska, haven't you?
8: Well, that's true. Actually, it was interesting listening to the jellyfish talk because we've seen some changes in jellyfish populations up here as well. Um, in some of the areas where I fish for sharks, we used, uh, we use large nets to catch the sharks and scoop the sharks up out of the ocean. Usually, one or two at a time, but we catch a lot of jellyfish. And when we when we land the sharks onto the onto the boat, we bring a lot of jellyfish on. And the shark is flopping around and and splashing jellyfish all over the place so by the time we measure tag and release the shark everybody's got jellyfish down their back and in their face and up their sleeves and
0: sounds sounds like a lot of fun uh bruce um but what what are you specifically doing uh with sharks and and why are you interested in them
8: well the shark population some of the shark populations have uh increased in some areas we're trying to figure out why they've increased and what they're doing, what impact that might have on the environment.
0: Why do you think they have gone up?
8: Well, the uh, the one, one shark species that we're really interested in is salmon sharks. Their numbers are up in some of the areas where uh, salmon production is up. So there might be a relationship with the changing salmon population. Um, and then there used to be a high-seas high, uh, gillnet fishery for flying squid. It was a Korean-Taiwanese fishery. And that was that has ended. We think that during that fishery, lots of sharks were taken incidental to the squid, uh, to taking the squid. And now that that fishery stopped, uh, we think that uh, that that has resulted in an increase in shark.
0: What about in terms of global warming? Because haven't you seen some fairly profound changes in other things that live in the areas where you're actually trawling, for example? There's been a massive shift in, in, say, away from small crustaceans and shrimp and crabs towards pretty big fish.
8: Well, what we're referring to is a biological regime shift. And we saw in the Gulf of Alaska, a vast area, a shift from like you said, a crustacean-based ecosystem to a fish-based ecosystem in just a few years. And we're we're not exactly sure what caused it, but we do know that the ocean, ocean temperature increased about two degrees C, and a few years later we started seeing this shift, and within about five years the, the crustacean ecosystem just totally disappeared and it was, was replaced with uh, flatfish on the bottom and gadded codfish, that type of thing.
0: Do you think this is reversible, or have we essentially messed this up now, and we 're not going to get it back to how it was
8: yeah I, th- I think the uh, I think when you look at global warming models you 'll see that the Gulf of Alaska will continue to warm, and so I think what we 're seeing is one of a series of shifts as this system trans- it, it, as this system changes from a uh, from an Arctic, sub-Arctic ecosystem to a temperate ecosystem, and probably eventually to a subtropical ecosystem as the oceans warm. So you'll see a series of shifts like this.
0: And I what will be the consequences with that in mind, Bruce, for the shark population? If things are going to warm up, will they leave?
8: Well, I think the salmon sharks uh, will benefit as long as there's salmon around to eat, and they're highly migratory. They travel all over the Pacific, so they'll find they'll find hot spots to feed eat a variety of fish. You know, they can eat herring, um, they can eat uh, codfish. So so they'll figure it out and, and, and they'll move around as long as they're not overexploited.
0: Bruce Wright from the Conservation Science Institute in Alaska, and Bruce has written an article which you can find on our website, nakedscientist.com. If you follow the links to articles and Bruce Wright, you'll see a very nice description of exactly what his work involving tagging, catching and monitoring shark populations in uh, Alaska involves. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. Very shortly we'll be talking to Dan LaFoley from English Nature, and uh, I'd just like to bring you up to date with how we're doing with our competition this evening. Don't forget, there's Uh, two family tickets to sharks 3d which is the new imax movie at the science museum we'll be finding out about that in just a second um we have heard from dave in ipswich he's definitely on the right lines in my quiz ellen from cambridge thinks it's calcium carbonate that's not right the question was what is the stuff that you see fizzing off what's the gas that's coming out of your kettle when you add something to descale it that's the question we want uh, you to answer tonight helen
2: Another quick email here from Stan in El Paso, Texas, who says he just started listening to our podcasts and he absolutely loves them. Thanks, Stan. Kudos to everyone here, apparently.
0: Now, uh, Fran Bekeleg, who's our reporter, has been down at the Science Museum to go and see the movie I've been talking about this evening, Sharks 3D, and she caught up with Gavin McKinney, who's the director of photography, to find out what it was like to make that film.
10: I'm at London Science Museum, where I've just been to a special preview of the new Sharks 3D film I've got Gavin McKinney here, who's the director of photography on the film. Gavin, there's some amazing photography in that. Did you have to wear any special equipment when you were filming the sharks?
3: Uh, No, we were just um, working with wetsuits.
10: So no chainmail suits or cages or anything like that?
3: Uh, We actually had a cage built for the great white shark sequence, but um, it was built too small and the camera couldn't fit in it. So we used it kind of as a... A safety net behind us
10: so just how close did you get to these sharks
3: um reach out and touch i mean we could have i didn't
10: even the great white
3: yeah the great white uh, right at the end one of the last shots you see where it's just coming straight to the camera it's one of those situations where you go "Oh, this is going to be a great shot this is going to be great and then uh-oh is it going to turn so it, it came it literally came within about two feet of the camera and and swerved off so I could have reached out and touched it but didn't feel so inclined. So it's
10: pretty amazing that you got so close to all these sharks that we consider so deadly. Are they really as deadly as they seem?
3: Well for sure they're predators and they have to be treated with the utmost respect. It's, It's not our world it's their world Unfortunately, mankind figure that they should be kings of everything, and then if an animal reacts in in its normal way, we consider them wicked. But they're predators, and, um, you know, they have to eat.
10: There's a pretty strong conservation message in the film. At the end, you show that all the sharks you featured are actually endangered. What are you trying to
3: achieve? We're just trying to um, raise the level of awareness amongst human beings that... If the ocean dies, we will die. In the last 50 years, um, the, the number of sharks that have been taken is astronomical. Um, according to some scientists, it's 100 million sharks a year. And to put that into some kind of perspective, that would be the equivalent of killing the population of China in 10 years.
10: So what can people who see the film and feel inspired actually do to help their conservation?
3: Well, the the biggest problem is with the shark fin soup in, in Asia. So They can write to their MPs and try and get this up front and, and on the ballot. And finally,
10: what was the most exciting moment of shooting the film?
3: Swimming with the whale shark was amazing. You know, I was swimming backwards through the water filming this thing and um, I would try to pull away off to one side and it would just keep following me. And I, you know, so I was out of breath, I was laughing my head off and I was trying to get away from it. And then eventually, you know, I stopped and it came up, you know, it sort of touched me and then it went away. That was an amazing experience.
10: Well, hopefully lots of people will get to see the film and experience it for themselves. Thanks very much, Gavin.
2: Well, I, for one, am absolutely dead keen to see that i can't wait to get down to london but you two could also win some tickets to go and see that fantastic production sharks in 3d by giving us a call answering questions on our fact or fiction competition or telling us what gas comes out of your kettle when you put acid into it um so yes thanks fran for that and uh, yes fantastic show
1: the naked scientists supported by the welcome
6: trust
0: Got an email here uh, for you, Dan and Chris. Uh, this is from Neil Wallace, who's in Kennington. He says, "Dear Chris, cultural and religious issues aside, I'm interested to know whether it would make ecological sense to start burying our dead at sea. Surely this would provide the oceans with a much-needed source of nutrients and help to balance out the, mat- the amount of living matter we remove from the sea by fishing. Or am I being hopelessly simplistic?"
7: Well, it it does go on. Um, there, there are sea burials occasionally. Um, even now, um, I think people still still want a sense of place in terms of going to see graveyards and where their where their relatives are. So I, I don't think we'll ever catch on a big way, sort of thing.
2: There's one thing I've heard about. I don't know if you've ever come across a thing called a reef ball, which is a way of building an artificial reef to try and encourage regrowth of coral reefs when they've been damaged. And that's actually kind of made out of concrete and you can actually be cremated and incorporated into a reef ball so that you actually become part of an artificial reef, which I quite like that idea. I don't
0: <laughs> know. Dan, let's talk about the, the thing that you've been focusing on, which is marine conservation. What can we actually do to try and offset some of the problems that Chris was referring to and, and Bruce has been mentioning, which is dwindling stocks of certain species and booms in others?
7: Well, I think we can do a, a series of things. One thing we can do is Im- generally improve the management of the seas, um, uh, not be so focused on taking short-term profit for loss of long-term objectives. But I think what we can also do is actually uh, set aside areas of the sea for, for wildlife and, and for its recovery. Um, after all, um, a lot of the, the things we do in the marine environment, whether it's for, for recreation, uh, enjoyment, or whether it's um, in terms of earning a living, actually you know, depends centrally on a, a healthy, uh, fully functional marine environment. But how realistic is it to start saying, right, we're going to set aside a bit of the
0: sea like a national park and we hope that that's going to sustain these threatened species? Is that realistic or,
7: or, or are we not just doing enough? Well, it's realistic, it's happening, but it's not happening probably in the right way and fast enough.
0: How much sea would you need to set aside to, in, in, in order to offset the damage that's happening?
7: If you're, if you're talk, talking long-term sustaining fish stocks, um, a recent Greenpeace report said uh, around 30-40% of the sea. That's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot, but you've got to remember right now, we've got far too many fishing boats and far too much development in in the marine environment. But the fishermen wouldn't agree with you, would they? Uh, Depends who you talk to. I've just come back from a a trip to Spain, the heartland of the fishing industry, where you actually have fishermen there actually saying, we really need some areas that we strictly protect because we want to, to fish less and earn more. You know, bigger fish... Uh, att- attract a much better price. We're creating this world of small mouths. Um, when you think of cod, cod used to be perhaps on average length, a metre or so in length. It's now perhaps 30, 34 centimetres, something like that. That's quite a worry though, isn't it? Uh, the fact that we've ended up with an average fish size of, of a third of what it was. Um, and no sign, actually, of recovery? It's a worry because we're doing it all under one type of management, and that management is about um, exploiting the marine environment, uh, acting where we've got the knowledge. And Remember, we're we're dealing with an environment where we we know less about it than we we think we do. So we've got to really turn the corner. We've got to um, to set areas aside for, for recovery. And the experience, wherever we've done that in the world, for wildlife is as a benefit. How do these areas
0: actually work though? It's, it's easy to say, hey, this bit of uh, the sea is a no-go area but surely fish, it's not like having a bit of national park where there can be a fence around it or the trees stop afterwards and so animals tend to naturally stay there. Don't the fish just wander in and out of the of the set-aside area and get caught anyway? Or is that intended to be the case?
7: Well, that's a big debate at the moment because you, if you have a much more natural, healthy environment, everybody knows on land, if you go to a ploughed field, you're going to see relatively few species if you go to a national nature reserve lots of complex habitats different habitats you're going to see much more so there's a a big debate at the moment about uh, whether fish really do just pass through these areas or whether they start to kind of hang around if you know what I mean um, because it's a much better environment to be in. Are there any really good examples of this working at the moment? Uh, There are and in fact um, there is in in the UK Uh, We've got a lot of protected areas, but we've only got one example of the type I've been talking about for recovery. And to give people a a visual impression of this, next time you look at the weather, um, the scale of this area is so small you wouldn't be able to see it on the weather chart. You'd have to zoom in onto the Bristol Channel, 3.3 square kilometres, only closed three years ago, and yet you, 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 in in terms of science, put a string of pots down to see how it's doing, full of massive lobsters. No-one ever predicted it, and that's generally the story around the world, but clear benefits for wildlife. And it is now one of the, the only places where you get an idea of what natural may be looking like.
0: Helen, you wrote an article pointing out that um, space rockets can actually be good for fish for exactly the same reason.
2: Well, that was a sort of uh, on the back of closing off around the Space Kennedy Centre for safety reasons. Um, it also kept the sport fishermen out and all the other kind of fishing vessels around there. And in the end, um, much more prize-winning fish were being pulled out because they were allowed to grow to their full size and the whole system was basically healthier and uh, doing better. So, yeah, space rockets can save fish les
0: is in over hello les hello welcome to the naked scientists what would you like to ask dan
7: um yeah the um sea level rising um so much you know so many things change it pressure air pressure of the day um wind uh,
8: moves it yeah ground movement you know, how can we be sure it's risen by I think I heard it was about an inch in 100
7: years. So how can we be sure, given that the sea level is such a dynamic thing? Yeah. What do you reckon, Dan? Well, we've got long-term monitoring stations where we're actually looking at this, and certainly the, the, the predictions are by 2025 we're looking at a further increase of 15 to 17 centimetres. Um, there's a li- more uncertainty beyond that in terms of what will happen to the Greenland ice cap and various others. But certainly the issue we have is we have good data, it is increasing, and that's a, that's a concern for coastal communities, but it's also a concern for wildlife at the coast, which is trapped, if you like, between the the, uh, the, the seashore and the solid, um, solid seawalls that we build. And this is, this is leading to, or it has, been, has led over the last uh, ten years or so to to a loss of around 25% of our salt marsh in uh, south, south-east England because of um, the whole complexity of sea-level rise uh, destroying these habitats. Does that kind of get that uh, nailed for you, Les? Yeah,
8: just
0: about, yeah. See you later.
8: Yeah, OK, bye-bye.
0: Some really fantastic news now, which is that, thanks to your efforts, The Naked Scientist has been nominated for the podcast awards this year in the science and technology section. But this means that the result now goes to a vote, and there are four other competitors who are all vying for the top slot, which means we have a huge favour to ask you. We need your help. We need as many votes as we can get to try and win this thing. So if you like what we do here at The Naked Scientist, starting from Friday the 28th of July for 15 days... You'll be able to vote once every 24 hours, and there's a link on our website. If you go to our homepage, nakedscientist.com, you can see there's a link, a podcast awards banner there. If you follow that link, it gives you all the instructions about how to register a vote for the Naked Scientists in the Science and Technology section, which is down at the bottom left of the screen on the podcast awards website. We would really appreciate your support to try and get as many votes as we can in this thing. Thank you. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Right, we've got about one minute and I'm going to try and squeeze in Alan from Nacton. Hi, Hi Alan. Hiya. What would you like to talk about?
3: Well, it was a caterpillar that I found this morning in our garden. Yeah. The cat was playing with it. Oh, my God. It was about two and a half to three inches long. Yeah. And
7: about as thick as my thumb. Okay. Uh, It was olive green with bits of black.
0: um, Yeah, was it furry?
7: no it wasn't really furry
0: okay um i think i'm going to take a massive guess and someone can shoot me down because this is not my area but i think it sounds like it could be a hawk moth caterpillar and the reason i think I, i've got good grounds for saying that is because hawk moths are doing extremely well now and you can recognize them because they they hover and they stick a very long proboscis into flowers it's like a long feeding tube that they stick out from their mouth down the stems of flowers and they have massive caterpillars and they, it does sound like that does sound like what that is it
3: was um, well, it was in the Rose Garden, actually.
0: Well, that would kind of... They do like anything that will give you a nice juicy dose of nectar because they're quite a big uh, moth to support, so they have to be a big caterpillar to turn into a big moth.
7: Yeah. Its head actually reminded me of a grass snake's head because it actually moved, moved its head like a grass snake. I mean, I mean, I've never seen anything... Well, perhaps,
0: uh, hopefully, one of our listeners can help us out. We're going to have to leave it there, Alan, because we have run out of time. But uh, if you know what Alan's caterpillar was, do let me know by email, chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, I can tell you that on next week's show, we'll be talking to Gay Gibson, who's worked out how mosquitoes work out who's male, who's female, and who to mate with. We'll be meeting John Drury from the University of Sussex, who's an expert on crowd control and evacuations. And he's actually interviewed a lot of people from the London bombings last year, and he'll be talking about how people behave in crowds. And also Clifford Stott, who joined the World Cup not as a football supporter, but to go and find out what makes people riot, and especially why England fans are so badly behaved when they go abroad. If you have any questions about that, then do email them to me this week, chris at thenakedscientist.com. In the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening. The answer to the quiz, the kettle gives
8: off carbon dioxide. See you next week.